I'm Josiah Meldrum, and I'm one of the co-founders of Hodmadog, British Beans, Peas, Grains and Seeds. So could you just tell us like the, the, the story of Hodmadogs, what is it and, and how did it come about? Yes, I can, but it's a long story, so I won't <laughs> tell it all. But um, Hobbardods really grew out of uh, a project in Norwich. It was a, it was a transition initiative um, called the Norwich Resilient Food Project. And we simply asked the question, could a city the size of Norwich, which is about 160,000 people, maybe a few more because they're coming into work, could it feed itself? And if it were to feed itself, how might that change land use and how might it change the diets of the people that live in the city? We did a bit of desk-based research, that was myself, William Hudson and Nick Solmarsh. Uh, on behalf of Transition City Norwich, we were actually working for an NGO called East Anglia Food Link. And we got really carried away with the work, and we got really fascinated by, you know, macronutrients, micronutrients, land use, you know, what soil types there were around the city. And the, and the final conclusions were really quite straightforward. Uh, Norwich needed to recreate um, a kind of hinterland of horticultural production, which all cities used to have. Market gardens, effectively, supplying, um, supplying the city's restaurants, shops, cafes, homes. Um, it needed to re-engage with uh, milling and cereal production. Norwich, at one point, had mills all down the river, and they're all closed. They're all luxury flats, shopping centres, the kind of thing. So uh, it needed to, to reconnect with the arable land that sur would surround that horticultural land. And it would need to eat a lot less meat. Um, the meat took up, the production of meat took up a lot of space and it had a huge environmental footprint and that, that couldn't be sustained uh, in this sort of future model that we perceive because Norwich and its hinterland would still have a responsibility to feed bigger urban conurbations. So we'd need to make sure there was enough land to do that job. And it would need to become less dependent on synthetic fertilisers in particular, but synthetic inputs of all sorts to reduce its fossil fuel requirements. And so in all of that, we still need to eat protein and we still need to find nitrogen to fertilise the soil. And beans, which do both of those things, sort of loomed into the picture. And we saw that producing more leguminous crops, pulses, um, beans, peas, uh, chickpeas, lentils, around the city, which are fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere and feeding the following crops, but also providing useful protein which could be eaten in the city, would be really important. And we wrote this all up and we presented it to Transition Norwich as a chapter in their, uh, their action plan. And they were really taken with it and asked us to actually help them implement some of those ideas. So we set up a small CSA, nine acres on the edge of the city, working with about 150 families, we, um, we established a mill in the city centre, milling some of that cereal that was being grown in huge quantities but had no connection with Norwich anymore in the city. And, and the beans came last and they were the very last bit and we really didn't know how to approach them. And we began speaking to farmers who were, who were working around Norwich and we knew that peas and beans were grown and we'd assumed that they were all being fed to animals and we wanted to understand why. And the first farmer we spoke to, uh, we asked him, you know, what's the most important thing about your bean production year? What are you doing? And he said, well, the biggest thing is when Ramadan falls. And this was a real surprise. You know, Ramadan, how does that influence what the Norfolk farmer is producing? And he said, well, I'm growing these beans, these field beans, and I sell them to Egypt. And the Egyptians are very particular about the beans, and they like a very light-coloured bean. 
and they use it to break fast during Ramadan and they cook a dish called fulmadames and they like a light bean which is freshly harvested and if we can supply that then we've done really well and we thought well hang on a minute we're we're looking at farmers and thinking about asking them to grow beans and they're already growing beans that people are eating and we quickly discovered that the UK is growing around a quarter of a million tons of beans which are all exported mainly to North Africa and the Middle East where they're a, a key part of traditional diets and uh, it, was, it, it stopped us in our tracks really and we knew that because we've been working in food and farming for a long time we knew that field beans were which are a, a type of small broad bean were very widely grown we knew they were using animal rations um, but it, it, we hadn't really thought to inquire about the extent to which they would be eaten, or traditionally have been eaten. And they've been grown here since the Iron Age. They're one of the original crops of kind of domesticating from you know, the Fertile Crescent and they came here. But they've been found at Glastonbury, you know, a thousand years, two thousand years, Roman, pre-Roman. They were eating these beans. Um, so we began cooking with them and they're great. They're really good to eat. We like them. Um, we approached various wholesalers and, and people that might help us market them, and they weren't interested in doing that. We began to understand a bit more about the cultural history, the social history that had led to them becoming stigmatised and not being eaten. Um, this whole um, move to industrialised agriculture, which happened a lot longer ago here than in the rest of the world. So really that's, that change started 400 years ago. And we got rich. We learn how to store meat and dairy over the winter. Uh, and if you needed to get protein from beans or peas, you, you were poor. And so they just completely disappeared from the written record. Mm. Uh, anyway, so <clears throat> we realised that none of those stigmas are really apply anymore, but we've just fallen out of the habit of eating these beans. And we began by buying half a tonne of split beans, the peeled beans, that would have been going to Egypt to make falafel. And we put them in a little bag and we worked with a local artist to create a postcard, an illustration of the beans with a recipe on it. And on the back, it was postage paid and we asked people what they thought. Would they eat them again? Had they ever come across them? And we weren't, initially we weren't hopeful, although we'd enjoyed eating them. Um, and we packed a ton up and spread them wide around Norwich. I had some. You, you had some, yeah, we took them to Transition Network Conference. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the postcards just started to come back. And initially, we, it was a trickle, and then it was a stream, and then there were hundreds of them coming back. And people were astonished. I mean, they were really amazed that here was this crop being grown around the city in which they lived, that they'd driven past, that they'd seen being harvested, that they were completely, they walked through, they'd never occurred to them to eat it. And it, and, and they couldn't believe that they hadn't and that no one had done this. Um, and the response was, naturally, because they'd taken the time to respond, I suppose, but the response was overwhelmingly positive. And we realised that this was something that we needed to take further and tell the story and encourage more people to try this crop that we could already grow. We didn't need to spend years trying to work out how to grow chickpeas when we had a bean <laughs> that we could grow and eat on our farms already and so and so what is Hodmadods so firstly what, what, what why the name Hodmadods yeah and what is Hodmadods now 
Yeah, so the, the Norwich Resilient Food Project actually finished in 2012. And the CSA continues, the mill is still based with a, with a baker in Norwich. And we, because we couldn't find a partner to sort of take on the bean element, and because we were so excited by beans, <laughs> we decided that we would, Nick, William and I, would, would do that work. Um, initially just with four products, um, whole and split beans, marrowfat peas and carlin peas, which are very traditional in the north of England, but again, are tragically overlooked. And um, we chose the name Hodmadod because like the beans and peas, it's a, it's a forgotten word, it's a dialect word from East Anglia, which means hedgehog or snail, and we wanted to see that being revived and to have some of those, that local cultural character of the thing kind of emphasised in the name. Um, and we just began with those those four beans and peas really and it was part time and it wasn't it wasn't until 2014 really that we had enough momentum to take on our own warehouse space but also to begin really very directly engaging with farmers so instead of buying what they might have sold for export or to animal feed we were now at volumes where we could we could ask them to grow specific varieties in mm. specific ways. Um, one of the first things that we did was begin organic production of those beans and peas, which hadn't been happening for at least 15 years, mm. because Canadian imports were so much cheaper, particularly of peas, uh, split yellow and green peas, that farmers who made the effort to produce um, a pea that was good enough for human consumption would find that they were undercut when the big ship arrived at mm. Plymouth or wherever, Portsmouth or wherever it comes into, full of cheap Canadian peas. Uh, by offering a farmer a price and working out what his cost of production was and, and being able to say, you know, if, if you meet the quality specification, which farmers would always have to do anyway, then we will pay this price come harvest. Uh, and that allowed them to feel confident about making the investment and the effort to grow and dry the peas for human consumption mm. rather than just for animal feed. So we began by doing that, and then we realised that there were a whole host of other crops, combinable crops as they're known, crops that you harvest with a combine harvester that dry in the field, that we could be growing here and that we could massively increase the diversity of crop production on UK farms, hugely increase the diversity of the foods that we're eating, these carbohydrate and protein crops that form the, the core of our diets. We're all, I think, increasingly aware of where our meat, dairy and vegetables come from, but there are these anonymous crops, you know, the rice that's under your curry, you know, the, where's the pasta, where's the flour come for that pasta, who's made that, where are your oats from, who processed them? They're questions that even the most sort of ethical consumers don't often actually ask. And we wanted to ask those questions and we wanted to get people thinking about, you know, which ship did that come in on and which country was it growing on? How are those people treated? Um, can we do something about the social, economic and environmental impact of this food stuff? Because the, the, the process of getting, getting British people for whom a field bean is something that's an, is a, is an animal yeah. food yeah. and it's kind of war food... Yes. You know, every, every culture has its kind of thing that doesn't eat anymore because yes, yeah. whether it's sweet chestnuts in Italy or yeah, whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. How did you get cuz fundamentally what you what what you've what you're doing or what you've done is to get people to 
imagine those things in a different way. You know, there's a there's a sort of a, an imagination piece there for me about that you've done really beautifully about how you how you market that within the watercolors yeah. and the recipes and how you've taken something that people thought you feed it to pigs mm. to thinking oh yum great yeah, absolutely Ooh, what yeah. would we make with that? Can you t- tell me a little bit about how that how you've done that? Yeah, I, I yeah I I think I think we have done that. I think we've done that from the start by being very clear about the history of the bean and the stigma that's associated with it and making that part of the thing that makes it exciting. Mm. Eating this bean, you are in some way, it's transgressive, you know, you've, you've, you've decided to take something that is stigmatised and make it part of your diet. Uh, I think that's quite exciting and it's a story to tell, you know, people love, if they're having their do people do dinner parties anymore? I don't know. But <laughs> this idea of, you know, talking about what, what food you've got, people like that. You know, they like to say, look at these beans and here's the story. And by being very clear about what the story was and giving that story to people to then retell to their friends is a really powerful way of, of just propagating an idea about something. Mm. So we did that. Making it beautiful is really important. The aesthetics of it. Beans are... Some beans are really beautiful. Field beans are not perhaps the most beautiful of bean, but packing them in such a way as they're really attractive. People want to pick them up and they want to look at them. And then when they begin to engage with the, the story of them, they want to eat them and, and mm. experiment with them. Um, and, and so using an artist, working with an artist, picking an interesting name that's, that also has a story to go with it. Mm. Um, but I think we were massively and hugely helped by a whole change that's happened in the way we eat in this country that happens simultaneously. So we're much more open. We're an incredibly open country when it comes to our diets. We're, we're much more open to foods and cuisines from all over the world than we were 20 or 30 years ago. And we, we were able to say, look, we don't eat these beans, but look what they do with them in North Africa. And people were very interested in that. And we could show them the recipes, we could take photographs, um, use social media, use websites to, to, to encourage people to think a bit differently mm. about those ingredients. They're not just the kind of pottage or gruel or whatever you might want to do. But th- there's, there's a whole host of really exotic and exciting things that can be made with this rather humble ingredient. Mm. I think that that helps. But it's the, it's the story of it that really mm. hooks people in and they're fascinated by it. Do you think there's something about uh, uh, like, like give, given your backgrounds in the whole kind of local food movement, that there is something in, there's something within that and within transition about saying that kind of French idea of bricolage, you know, about using what you have like a bit like the A-team yeah. coming out of the garage and building themselves some amazing thing by welding together a few yeah. lawnmowers, you know, yeah. that actually that concept of saying rather than how Donald Trump, for example, would say, oh, there are no limits. Yeah. There is something yeah. about having a mindset of saying, mm. actually, limits are great. We love these limits. Yeah, mm. we're going to try and feed this city. And when you make that imaginative shift to saying, we're going to work with what we have, mm. and actually a local food economy could be so much more, you know, that, that kind of bricolage sort of idea... Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, Nick, William and I are all foragers as well, so we're very keen on what's in season, what's about, what can you take, and, and how can you use that to, to transform what you're, what you're eating. Uh, so, so I think there is, a, there is an element of that. Um, but I don't think that's what really 
grab people's imagination. Uh, yeah, I, it, it, that's slightly, I think that's quite, I see exactly what you're saying, mm. although I'm not entirely sure. I think from our point of view, it was start with what you've got and work out how you can use that. That's, that's our approach mm. to it. Mm. But I don't know if other people have necessarily seen it. Well, you obviously have. But, <laughs> but, but have seen it in quite that way. I think there are kind of three or four categories of people that have been particularly engaged. So there's the, there's the kind of um, the people that are very interested in food, that are horrendously are called foodies, which is a really nasty word. <laughs> <laughs> people that are really interested in food and want to try new things. So they're quite experimental and they'll, they'll, they, they would be keen to, to try their beans and to try the recipes that we were introducing them to. And then there are, then there are uh, the environmental motivations for eating the beans. So there were a lot of people that were initially encouraged to eat them because they saw them as part of a future, you know, a more resilient, mm. um, less intensive future, and that they were a good choice for that diet. So they'd made that choice, which was less about the beans themselves and more about the impact of the beans. And then what's happened in the last three or four years, really, is the kind of rise of plant-based diet, veganism, vegetarianism, mm. the consumption of less meat, um, those people have no um, kind of preconceptions about the beans. It's almost as if that moment has passed and they're just interested in them as another ingredient that they can add. And they are increasingly understanding the global impact of commodity food production. So what is the impact of soy production in South America? How much land area are we using to feed livestock in the UK or, or, or to produce soya curd or milk or whatever? Um, and some of that initial research that we'd done for the Norwich Resilient Food Project, which demonstrated really clearly, and I know you did this in Totnes as well, mm. Britain can feed itself. It's not an issue there. It just doesn't want to. <laughs> and, and, and I think increasingly, people do seem to, to want to engage with that. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's difficult to... I mean, when you're in it, it's very difficult to see mm. what... I think we've been to visit, initially, it was all word of mouth. We didn't have a presence, we didn't. So we would go and talk to people. And I think that was also, so you talk to a room full of people, 50 people, and you give them all some beans to take away. And you've got 50 evangelists for your beans who are gonna go and tell their friends. Mm. And that multiplier effect is rapid, surprisingly rapid. And how have you seen it, it, it kind of, because when you when you open up this possibility and say, "Hey, look, we could we could eat the beans from here, and here they are, mm. and try them and see what they're like," and how have you seen it influence other people's imaginations of what they think is possible? Yeah. So when we started, we were the only people doing this kind of thing. There were other people doing it in slightly different ways, but with with certainly with legumes, and it's it's made a lot of farmers realise that there is this opportunity to do things completely differently, to completely rethink the, the supply chain that they have been stuck in, which is we grow a commodity, we fill up a bulker, a big lorry with 29 tonnes of that commodity, it goes to a place, probably goes to a ship, and then who knows, to really think about how they can take those crops that would otherwise just leave the farm and who knows, and really start to think about where they might end up. And so there are other projects that have started as a consequence. Um, we buy, um, we were really interested in runner beans, 
runner beans were they're delicious and in most of the rest of the world um, they don't eat runner beans like we eat them as green beans um, they eat much nicer softer beans for green beans but we have trouble growing them um, they use them uh, as a dry bean and so in in Greece where they they have gigantes the giant beans that kind of get in tomato sauce and things that's a runner bean um, it's a completely different family of bean to the beans that we're normally eating so we found um, farmers that are growing runner beans for the supermarkets and we went to them and we said what, one in particular in South Africa what are you doing with the beans at the end of the year and he said oh I just strip them off the poles and we that's it we chuck them on a compost bin and I said well what about all of the beans that are still in the pods have you considered hulling them and then we'll buy them and he'd not ever considered even eating them. I think he thought they were poisonous. <laughs> well, it's by selling them to yeah. other people to eat. Well, selling them as, as green beans, as dry beans, he thought. And so he made some hummus from them at home and could not believe that he'd been composting for 20 years <laughs> this delicious bean that it never occurred to him to eat. Um, and we, we bought some of those beans from him over the next couple of years. But now he's setting up a business to make a bean hummus out of his special beans, which is, it's, it's never going to make him, it's not going to make him a millionaire, but it is going to cover the cost of that end of season cleaning and preparing the land for the next year. So it's a really potentially important marginal gain that he's made in his farm system. Um, so there's those sorts of smaller initiatives, but then there are bigger impacts as well. So bigger businesses than ours, bigger food businesses, um, are now looking at these UK-based products and thinking much more seriously about using them as ingredients in their foods. Um, so, our beans, but also other beans that, that, that are grown in the UK, are now cropping up in products on supermarket shelves, which was never really something that we anticipated. It was the kind of broader change that we wanted but it does represent this kind of normalisation of the fava bean, that it has become, mm. you have to create this narrative, we have to get it into cookery books. That was one of the first things that we tried to do, is engage with food writers and bloggers to, to sort of normalise the idea of using this bean. And once it's in a recipe book, people can, it, people can open up the recipe book and say, well, I need fava beans, you know. Mm. I don't have to think about whether or not they're poor people's food, this recipe says that's what we're going to find, and so they go and look for them. And so uh, it's, it's incremental, but I think there is a big change afoot with bean production. And, and, where, could, uh, and where could it go? Like, you know, you, you started back in Norwich with the, the, the thing in the yeah. context of a 20-year vision for Norwich. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where does where does the, what you've learned now from doing this for the last five, six, seven years? Yeah. Where does it take you now in terms of your imagining of where food and farming in this country could be in twenty years' time? Yeah. Well, it takes us in every different direction every day because there's always something new that we're thinking about. But our broader vision is for a a completely new. Um, approach to farming in the UK. So completely rethinking on-farm rotations, looking at looking at crops that benefit the following crop. Uh, so much like the peas or beans are fixing nitrogen, which can benefit the cereal, we can also grow crops which have a, a straw that can be bringing up P and K, 
crops like buckwheat, which, which are very good at scavenging minerals from the soil, which can then be returned to the following crop, but also can suppress weeds. And our broader idea is to create this whole new rotation, which has a high return to the farm, both economically, so it's, it's worth the farmer doing it, but also agroecologically, it's, it's, more, it's a more sufficient system, it's a more robust system. And by demonstrating that there's a demand for those products, those crops, we can encourage farmers to make the shift to growing them. Back in our East Anglia Food Link days, when we wanted to change the food system, we've always wanted to change the food system, we would go to farmers and say, this is what you need to be doing, that's what we've decided, we've got a spreadsheet, it's, it's all there off you go. And they would say, well, yeah, that's great. That looks great on paper, but who's going to buy these crops? Mm. And we never were able to answer that question. We tried working with local authorities, with public procurement, and it was always very challenging to actually create the demand that was required to, um, to soak up the huge amount of production capacity that there is in the UK. If you drive through East Anglia, or travel on the train through East Anglia, the, the fields, the, there are a lot of them, they're very big and they're full of crops that are going into feed mills and going into Chorleywood bread process plants. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to change the way that we farm those fields, which I think, and Nick and William also think, we have to, we need to, that needs to be a process of co-production, we need to, we need to work on the demand, we need people to understand what's happening in those fields now and what could happen. Um, and um, yeah, there's massive uncertainty right now because of Brexit, mm -hmm. which, um, which could be really, really positive. We, if, it, if we start to really think about where our food comes from, and if Brexit makes us do that, that could be fantastic. Um, we currently pay landowners about 50 million quid a week in farm subsidies. When they're supposed to produce some public goods from that, they're supposed to guarantee food supply and they're supposed to do whatever it is that they do to protect soil and biodiversity, we could be asking a lot more of them for that 50 million quid. Um, and we could, we could really create something quite fantastic. We could do all sorts of progressive things around land ownership as well. But, you know, there's a huge opportunity at the moment to rethink all of this. One of the things that I've asked everybody that I've interviewed has been if you had been elected prime minister in the last election and you'd run on a platform of make Britain imaginative again, what would yeah. you do in your first hundred days in office? Ah, oh, those are those are good questions. <laughs> and everybody says that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that is a that is a really good question. I think what I'd like. One of the things that people do when they visit the countryside, which is where our food is largely grown, I know there's some urban projects, but it's largely grown, is it, we have this funny idea that it's a completely static place. It's always been like that. It'll always be like that. It's a bucolic, you know, vision of this rustic idea, which is quite modern, really, in lots of respects. I would like to people to go out and see it as a completely blank canvas. You know, it doesn't need to, the hills do not need to look like the way they do. The fields do not need to, what could we be growing there? Um, and we've certainly collectively the three of us have never not you know can it be grown people say you can't just try it mm. and I think it's the same with the whole of our the whole rural kind of food production milieu just to 
just to completely begin. And, and I think local authorities could be doing that process. You know, um, they can do it very actively through their procurement. They can make choices um, even within current EU legislation. That's all possible. Um, and um, they can begin to think about land use and planning. Um, we can make some very simple changes that would free up land for much more innovative production. Mm. And I think looking at mechanisms to um, decouple um, land and value, there's, there's a real problem that that uh, price of land per acre, even for agricultural land, is no reflection of the rentable value of that land in that you cannot produce enough value on that field to effectively pay the interest cost on purchasing the land. I mean, it's a mad situation mm. where just the existence of the land has a value that's far higher than any productive value of it, which either encourages people to really sweat the asset by working it too hard or just do nothing. Mm. and not use their imagination because they don't need to. They can just wait for it to double in value in mm. 10 years' time. And that's a, that's, a real, that's a real block on our kind of mm. creative thinking about what's happening. On the other hand, we engage with farmers every day and they're incredible mm. and they are doing amazing things and they are just waiting to... Some of the things we, we might think, oh, I don't know if I'd do that... Some of them are, you know, very um, progressive and innovative, um, and they they do farm. They farm because they love farming, and they are just waiting to be given permission in some cases to to develop this new system. Mm -hmm. And I think we could we could do a lot more to encourage that to happen. Mm -hmm. so. One of the things I love about the mill and going out to the mill mm -hmm. here and being involved with the brewery where we're using stuff from the brewery is that. Yeah. For the last 30, 40, 50 years, you know, it's felt like that move towards monoculture mm. has been a shutting down of mills and abattoirs yeah, and all yeah. that infrastructure and a more and more narrowing down. But what you see, like, in the craft beer movement in America, for yeah. example, is mm. how, as that builds, it builds a demand for people to make local malt again and the yeah. malting start yeah. and the local hop production starts and the infrastructure yeah. gets put back in and we see this momentum mm. that starts to build going in the other direction. Mm. Do you... Do you see that happening? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so monoculture is the bane of you know, food production. Both monoculture in terms of the quality of the food that we're eating, which is very uniform, and you know, because of the supply chain, it has to be uniform because every sandwich has to be the same as the sandwich you had before, or whatever it happens to be that you're eating. The opportunity to break that up a bit and to... Well, I mean... Going back to the industrial estate, which I visited this morning, Seagrown in Totnes, and all of the businesses that are on that industrial estate, that plot of land, and they are cooking things and making things and working together and cooperating and collaborating to, to build a local economy, uh, much like a high street does, but you know, much more in a, in, a, in a kind of making way. We could do that with our farms. You know, they have, there's a huge potential not to build industrial estates on them but to have lots of different enterprises making use of that land resource so your beekeeper can be operating hives which benefits the orchard producer who's using their windfalls to help a pig enterprise and, and there's all sorts of possibilities to mm. by breaking away from looking at a single yield which is say wheat or barley that requires one person with two machines a tractor with some attachments and then a combine to, to harvest and, and, and sell. We could create 
so many more jobs, so many more opportunities, and have a much more vibrant rural economy as a consequence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, yeah, those are, those are definitely opportunities emerging from this kind of thing. Mm. And any last thoughts on imagination and food and that whole... Yeah, I think, I think people are often... Um, fewer and fewer people are cooking at home. It, more and more people are eating food to go. And I think that's a real pity. Uh, and people are very, often very nervous about experimenting with, with food, either with growing it themselves or with cooking it. They'll follow a recipe book. And we get phone calls from people who say, your recipe says um, 450 mils of water. Um, you know, I've put a bit more in. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the recipe's really just a set of guidelines. You don't have to follow it. You know, put in some different herbs, do something different. And I think it, it, if people are cooking at home and being creative at home, then it, it, it leads them to think more creatively about where that food is coming from. Mm. If you're just buying in a package or going into a restaurant, and uh, I hope that we can encourage more people to take raw ingredients, dry beans and pulses, mm. which on the face of it are quite challenging, and to think about how they might prepare them at home mm. and we get sent recipes we get sent so many recipes every week for things that people have done okay. that we had never imagined you know nice. someone phoning up and saying I've made tempeh with your fava beans it's the best tempeh I've ever tried or you know have you tried um, sprouting and fermenting and and they're doing all these things and sending us mm. pictures and telling us what they're doing and so it's they kind of built a community around it of people yeah absolutely and people who are yeah, growing things in their own gardens and saying, you know, oh, I've grown tiger nuts. Have you tried growing tiger nuts? So we grew tiger nuts this year just to see. And you grow quinoa as well. Yes, yeah, so we grow quinoa. Um, so that's working with a farmer who had a fantastic vision and imagination. So he was given some quinoa from South America in the late 70s, early 80s. And he saw immediately this was a fantastically nutritious, delicious foodstuff. And, and there was no reason why it wouldn't grow in the UK. So he began growing it. But no one quite shared his vision at that time. <laughs> this is in the mid-80s by this point. He's got fantastic news clippings of, um, of when he'd gone to trade shows and things with his South American superfood. Not that they used the word superfood. But, and no, it just didn't happen. And partly because it had a, a saponin seed coating which needed to be polished off. But it, it just wasn't ready. But he didn't stop thinking about the quinoa. So he grew it as a wild bird seed cover crop on the farm. And he sold the seed to other farmers to do that same thing. But whilst it was growing, every year he would go out and he would taste and find the plants, because it's, it outcrosses very readily, that were sweet, that didn't have that bitter saponin seed coating. Okay. He saved those and planted them in okay. isolation somewhere else on the farm. Wow. So that when we approached him in 2013 and said, have you ever thought about quinoa growing? I was like, yeah. He said, have I ever thought about quinoa growing? <laughs> and finally you've come. <laughs> yes, exactly. He said, he said, I tried it in the 80s and no one was interested. And we said, look at the internet, Peter. <laughs> and he phoned up the next day and said, quinoa is everywhere. <laughs> yep, people are ready for quinoa. Your moment is here. Wow, um, and he had four tonnes that year. And then we've multiplied it from there. And we're now growing it both on his farm in Essex, but also organically in, in Suffolk. And it's, a, it's, it's brilliant because it's, it's, that idea had been ticking away in Peter's <laughs> mind, waiting for someone else to have the imagination, perhaps, mm -hmm. to say... You know, we've seen fat hen growing. It's a wild relative. It's very close to quinoa. Can we grow quinoa here? 
yes, and I've been doing it. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's good. Good story, I think. Mm. And there are lots of other things as well. I mean, chickpeas, we've tried uh, and so far failed, but we're not going to give up. Uh, and by telling people that you're doing these things, event you, you find people that say, ah, but have you tried the winter chickpea from Iran? Mm. It grows in upland conditions. Maybe it would be better suited to our climate. Um, and we've been growing lentils, and we got some press coverage earlier this autumn when we harvested. And... Um, as a consequence of that, we were contacted by a sort of semi-retired professor from Reading University, Richard Ellis, who'd done a lot of trial work with lentils in the late 90s um, and was desperate for them to be commercialised but hadn't managed to find the right partner. And so now he's helping us to look at the agronomics of lentil production and refine our processes. So it's, it's yeah, sharing ideas, I think, inspires other people to, to share them back mm. and then you can have a creative process where... We will learn and develop things, and we're very open. We're not interested in, we're not interested in intellectual property. We're interested in everyone taking these ideas, and doing mm. something mm. with them. We think, sixty million people to feed. Um, we don't want to take over the world with Hobbit Dodd. We want a business that's sufficient, that pays our wage, pays the wage of the people that we employ, allows us to do all the things that we enjoy. But there's still a huge opportunity for lots of other mm. businesses operating all over the UK, like Grown in Totnes, to, um, to flourish in the same way. So, yeah, it's exciting. Wonderful. Thank you very much. That's all right.